It's 10 p.m. Do you know where your children are? The evidence was circumstantial, and the prosecution brought Wayne Williams to trial for two of the 28 killings. Apartments on Buford Highway, where we now have new developments in the ongoing investigation of the Centennial Park bombing. General Robert Abrams, for the first time, and officially calls the Tawana Brawler story a lie. At a press conference this morning, Seattle Police Chief Robert Hansen announced a special task force being formed to study Ted Bundy. Join us now as we go beyond criminal headlines. And I'm your host for Beyond Criminal Headlines, Nicole Bennett. Well, guys, after what I'm going to call a brief holiday hiatus. <laughs> Thank you so much for your patience. I have a very special guest for this week's episode, and that is Dr. Joni Johnston. Dr. Johnston is a forensic psychologist, private investigator, and crime writer who reached out to me, obviously, over our shared interest in true crime. So, a little on her background, as a practicing psychologist, she's worked in a medium maximum security prison for the Board of Parole, for the Superior Court of San Diego, and as a workplace investigator of misconduct allegations, including harassment, discrimination, and violence. She currently evaluates mentally disordered offenders up for parole and provides expert testimony in criminal and civil litigation where a forensic psychologist can help shed light on pertinent issues. And we're going to unpack just what those pertinent issues are, questions that Dr. Johnston gets asked as a forensic psychologist all the time. I mean, we spent, I think the first half of our conversation, I just picked her brain about her career. It's a <laughs> passion of mine, aside from journalism. I just think the field of forensic psychology is so fascinating. Of course, we discuss cases that Dr. Johnston has worked on and specifically one in particular that she recently did research on, the very tragic case of Susie Zhao. And I do want to go ahead and give a heads up to listeners, uh, trigger warning. Unfortunately, Susie Zhao's case is horrific, um, as is, you know, as are many of the cases that we discuss. But we will be uh, dealing with rape and sexual assault um, issues regarding mental illness. So for those of you listening, I did want to give a heads up, some graphic details, uh, just a trigger warning ahead of time. Um, to give you, as always, a brief overview of Susie's case, just this past November, a convicted sex offender was sentenced to life in prison for brutally raping and killing professional poker player Susie Zhao by burning her alive. Jeffrey Morris, uh, according to different reports, for instance, the Oakland Press uh, is now 62. I've seen varied reports. So he's in his 60s, though, was handed a mandatory life sentence without the possibility of parole on November 10th, just a little more than a month after he was convicted at trial of first degree murder and felony murder in the commission of second degree criminal sexual conduct. Jurors deliberated for less than an hour before finding him guilty. Um, a little more about Susie. She was a rising star in the world of professional poker. She'd been living in Los Angeles, but had more recently moved to Michigan to live with her mother and stepfather in June 2020. Um, she was dealing with some significant personal struggles. She'd been diagnosed as an adult with schizophrenia. Um, she was last seen alive by her mother on July 12th, 2020. Her remains were discovered the following day in a wooded area at the Pontiac Lake Recreation Area in Oakland County. Prosecutors said Jeffrey Morris, who was transient at the time he'd been convicted of a sex crime in 1989, met Susie Zhao at a Waterford Township motel. And um, Dr. Johnston and I, of course, unpack a lot more where this case is concerned. But one of those details is that we said Susie had moved home to live with her mother and stepfather in Michigan. Uh, apparently, she would often on stay at this particular motel. 
Um, we're not a hundred percent sure why, but we'll get into all that. And that is where she may have met Jeffrey Morris. So, um, before all this, obviously what happened to her being so horrific, prosecutors described it as Morris's depraved sexual fantasy involving bondage. And of course, all of this is not how Susie's family wants her to be remembered. And that's something that Dr. Johnston and I talked about throughout our conversation is that Susie's family and friends have said they hope the biggest takeaway when you hear about Susie's case is let's remove stigmas where mental health and mental illness are concerned and remember Susie not for how she died, but for how she lived. And so without getting too far ahead of myself, as always, here is my conversation with Dr. Joni Johnston on the field of forensic psychology as a whole and the murder of Susie Zhao. Well, like I said, I am so excited to have you on the podcast this week. I love journalism, but I know I, I told you ahead of time, my second you know, passion, uh, if I had gone into another field, would have been, I think, forensic psychology. I'm so fascinated by this field. So if you could just give us a little background on what you do, the field of forensic psychology, and how you got into this career. So forensic psychology is a pretty broad field, actually. When I was going to graduate school, you had to kind of specialize in clinical psychology. And then if you wanted to be a forensic psychologist, you had to get this special training. Now they actually have programs where you get your doctorate in forensic psychology. And what it really is, is forensic, which has to do with the law and psychology. So whenever there is a legal question that psychology or some psychological question can help that's really what forensic psychology is. So we're kind of at the intersection um, of law and psychology. And so practically, that can mean a bunch of different things, some of the things that you might not even think about. So for example, if somebody is in a car accident and they're saying, I was emotionally damaged or I have PTSD as a result of this car accident, that might be a question that a forensic psychologist could help answer. Or uh, probably the one we hear about more often are things like this person uh, murdered somebody and now they're they're saying that they are not guilty by reason of insanity. Is this person, you know, legally insane? Or you have somebody, um, I know there's a Lori Vallow case that your listeners may be familiar with, who was found not competent to stand trial. So that's another legal question that psychology can help can help answer. In that situation, the question is not, is this person guilty or not, or are they using a mental health defense? It's more is this person able to participate in her defense? Is she able to understand the legal process? Is she able to understand the roles that different people have? And is she able to participate in terms of assisting her attorney in her defense? So it's actually a pretty low bar that you have to meet to be competent to stand trial. So yeah, as I said, anytime there is some kind of question in the law that a psychologist could help answer, that's where we pop up. Wow. That's, again, just so fascinating to me. So like you said, the questions that come into play a lot in true crime, is this person competent? Are they guilty or not guilty by reason of insanity? It does come up a lot. And looking at some of the more infamous cases throughout true crime history, um, I was curious, was there anyone in particular or maybe more than one case that sparked your interest in forensic psychology? When I was 14, I was on a family vacation. And when you're 14, you don't really want to be on a family vacation. A lot of times it's like, oh, torture. So my mom was this person who, you know, wanted to drive 600 miles a day and then basically check off the list. Okay, we've seen, you know, we've seen Las Vegas. So now let's move on to the next thing. So I spent a lot of time reading in the car. And my mom was also a, a, just really a diehard true crime fan before we even knew what a true crime fan was. And this was more like watching Mannix and Ironside and all these old kind of detective shows. And so I somehow, I can't even remember, got a copy of um, Helter Skelter, which was, you know, the book about Charles Manson and his family. And I read it, you know, frontwards to backwards and then backwards to frontwards. And I absolutely just could not get it out of my head. It was like, we all understand, at least theoretically, 
how two people who know each other have been in a relationship, can be in an argument or get so mad at the other person that really bad things happen. But to think of somebody hurting somebody they don't even know. I just couldn't understand that, number one. And I also couldn't understand how these teenagers, these teenage girls who in in some respects looked a lot like me, um, at least when they first got involved with the Manson family, could end up doing these horrible things. And so the, the cult aspect of it was really intriguing to me. And so I really, really, that I think that started it. That really started me being interested in, I guess, the dark side of human nature and trying to figure out what causes that? What can we do to prevent that? Then when I was a senior in high school, and yes, this is dating me, but you know, it is what it is, right? <laughs> when I was a senior in high school, um, Ted Bundy, who we all know, um, escaped from in jail in Colorado, made his way down to FSU, which was about 80 miles from my house, and um, you know, murdered several women from the Cayamega sorority house and also a 12-year-old girl. And the pictures of his victims at the time, you know, looked like I did. I mean, here I am a singer in high school. Here are girls who are a year or two older than I am. And of course, in one case, significantly younger. And I think that really did it. That really did steer me completely in the direction that I ended up going. Because I just, like I said, I couldn't understand, you know, what why somebody would do that. It just didn't make any sense to me. And it was just so horrible. I mean, to think about somebody... For example, putting a cast on his arm and then preying on kind young women who end up getting murdered because they are kind young women was just, like I said, just something I couldn't get my, my head around. So that's what led me down the trail of forensic psychology. I mean, two infamous cases, Charles Manson, Ted Bundy. And it's like you said, I think that's part of not being a forensic psychologist, but someone who is very passionate, very fascinated by the true crime genre is the thought that maybe we could prevent it from happening again, you know, and and that's sometimes the morbid fascination behind trying to figure out why somebody would do something like what Ted Bundy did or Charles Manson did. And then another thing I noted, too, is when you say you can't help but relate to the the victims sometimes, it kind of intrigues or sparks your interest in a particular case, because for me... It was my mom, too, that was always into true crime. Um, and for her, it was uh, Jean Benet. That was the first case I remember she and I, I was in pageants when I was little, little. Um, and it just struck a chord with her seeing this little girl in pageants. And now she's a victim of this horrible crime and what happened. And I will never forget that's where it all started. For me, you know, you have that one case that you remember, that was it. So it's just interesting to hear what sparks people's interest in the genre. And then for you, what, you know, kind of sparked your interest in in the field of forensic psychology as a whole. Um, and so what do you do now as a forensic psychologist? I know you had mentioned you, you help testify uh, in different court cases. You also consult on true crime shows, right? I do. Um, that's kind of come about in kind of odd ways, but I really, really enjoy that because I do really enjoy talking about psychology and forensic psychology to people who aren't in the field um, to kind of try to help understand that. You know, one of the things I struggle with and still do is I was a true crime fan long before I became a forensic psychologist. And so I do have an interest in true crime. And at the same time, I feel such a responsibility as a forensic psychologist, when I'm talking about true crime, to try to use the story as the beginning of a discussion um, to really talk about more, I guess, helpful in some respects or more useful topics, whether it's, you know, risk assessment or whether it's safety kind of issues or understanding what it's like to be a victim um, and those kinds of things. So that's just something I think that's important to me in terms of the consulting that I do is to help making sure that media representations are as accurate as they can be and as sensitive as they can be. So that's kind of one hat that I wear. And then I guess what I call my day job <laughs> is I do a lot of work in um in the court system, but really even more work either with the Department of Justice or with the Board of Parole. Um, I do a lot of evaluations. Um, for example, one of the things I'm doing a lot of right now is California passed a law a couple of years ago that if you as a juvenile 
received a life without parole sentence. They passed a law a couple of years ago that you now can be reevaluated um, to see if you should be at some point eligible for parole. And so it's been so interesting, Nicole, to, to see people who did very serious offenses, because you can only imagine to get life without parole as a juvenile. You know, we are not talking about misdemeanors. We're not even talking about, you know, the, the typical violent crime. If there is one, we're talking about some very, very serious crimes as a juvenile. And now I'm seeing these people, men and women who are now in their 40s and 50s, and they're not the same person that they were at 15 or 16. And so then the question becomes, okay, what does what what does that mean and what should that mean? Because you have victims most often who aren't going to have a second chance. Their chance was taken away from them. And so there's this whole question of okay, what is the purpose of the criminal justice system? You know, is it punishment? You know, if it's just punishment, which you can make an argument for that, but if it is just punishment, then there's you know, this this some of the individuals I see should probably be punished forever. They should never get out because of the things that they did. If the purpose is rehabilitation, then, you know, what is enough punishment? What is, what is rehabilitation? You know, how do we know if somebody has been rehabilitated? They may have a pretty good record in prison. What about when they get out? And so help trying to help answer some of those questions, which are very complicated, has been such a meaningful journey for me, um, especially because I started out working with victims and now I'm working more with offenders. And so one of the things I always encourage anybody, you know, journalists or um, people who I, I teach for a, a PhD program, um, kids who are kids, <laughs> um, young adults who are now getting their PhD. And that's one of the things I always say to them is, you know, just like, like we have this kind of political polarization sometimes right now, you know, between Democrats and Republicans, it's so easy to see the same thing in when you're talking in the criminal justice system. And so I always encourage my students, you know, promise me that you will spend some time working with offenders and sometimes working with the victims, because it's so important to see the, the bigger picture and to understand that. Um, it makes it harder. <laughs> when, when I first worked with, uh, with victims, I worked a lot with sexual abuse victims. I worked a lot with children and I have to tell you the rage I felt sometimes at seeing some of the trauma, um, I can remember at one point thinking about this particular um, offender that I evaluated after seeing his his child who had been horribly sexually abused. I remember just thinking, like, I could be the one to, to flip the switch. I'm so angry at this person. And I was angry at this person. And, it is, and victims' rights are extremely important to me. At the same time, I, I also spent some time working in a maximum security prison. And one of the things I realized relatively quickly is that just like every victim is different, every offender is different. And so people get to their place in life for different reasons and different purposes. And so, you know, it's, it's a lot grayer sometimes than I guess I'd like for us, we'd like to think that it is. So I think I've, come full circle and realizing that as a, as a forensic psychologist, sometimes I think I raise more questions than answers, but I'm really always trying really hard to find those answers or at least do the best I can in providing my opinion. I can't imagine. I mean, working with children, uh, victims of sexual abuse, and like you said, it, it has to be I would think so fulfilling in a lot of ways to have worked with both victims and offenders to see both sides. Um, and the thought that came to mind too is we see so often in cases of sexual abuse, unfortunately, not that it justifies what they've done, but someone who is an offender could have been a victim at one point too. Um, so I'm sure you've seen that too, I'm sure in all your line of work. I, I definitely have. Um, you know, the statistics are kind of varied sometimes. I mean, I think the most consistent statistic I've seen is about a third of sexual abuse perpetrators were also victims of sexual abuse. Um, there are some studies that say that, you know, two thirds of offenders say that they've been sexually abused. And so there's a certain percentage that might not be telling the truth. But there's no question that among sex offenders, there is no doubt that there's an overrepresentation of sexual abuse victims. 
And I remember when I used to see some of the, of the victims that I saw, physical abuse, sexual abuse, neglect, I remember just being so fearful that at some point I was going to encounter them in the juvenile justice system or in the, you know, in the prison system, because I see these kids who are innocent and these are, you know, these are kids who are traumatized. These are kids who are, you know, doing the best they can to handle whatever has life has thrown at them. And you're right. We know that there's a, a certain percentage of individuals who end up going down the, you know, the juvenile justice or the criminal justice system. And that was just horrifying to me. Luckily, I never saw that. Um, but I, I know it happens. Absolutely. I mean, I just, I cannot commend you enough for, again, I'm sure it was just so fulfilling to get to work with a lot of victims in those cases and then hoping that we can prevent it from happening again. Um, being something too, that I thought of, um, I'll be honest, you know, when you think of forensic psychology, it sort of just dawned on me and just hit me. It's about victims too. I think there's this, maybe this kind of, um, my impulse thought when I hear forensic psychology is the study of someone like Ted Bundy and serial killers and, but how important it is to also talk to victims and, and know the, the why and of what happened to them too, to prevent it from happening again to others. And then you hit such a good point in the representation in the media for victims and things like that and sensitivity. And um, so it's just fascinating to kind of, like you said, to open your mind and realize it's about talking to victims and offenders alike. So in doing the work that you've done, um, you've also written multiple books. So um, could you maybe tell us just a little about those? And then I didn't know I wanted to ask if you have a new book in the works right now, maybe? Uh, that's a <laughs> no. long, long story, but I'll, I, won't, I won't make it too long. Um, I guess my most recent book is probably the most interesting, I think, from a forensic psychology point of view. Um, and it's called um, Serial Killers, 101 Questions True Crime Fans Ask. And I wrote that book. I was so lucky that I've been writing a Psychology Today blog for I guess since 2007, I think. So a pretty long time now. And so, you know, oftentimes readers of the blog would write in and have questions. And so I started keeping track of these questions, you know, several years ago, just for my own benefit to make sure that I, you know, knew the answer as much as possible. Because that is, you know, you brought this up earlier. I think it's such an important point that people think about forensic psychology and they think about serial killers or criminal profiling and, you know, we don't typically talk to serial killers. I mean, it's very, very difficult to get in and talk to a serial killer. I know that I've spoken to at least one, but I only know that because when I was working in a maximum security prison, I was seeing this person for something else and happened to read his, what they call C file, which is his custody file. And so in prison, people don't often talk about why they're there. They're talking more about surviving in prison, mental health symptoms or whatever's going on with them there. So that is kind of a myth. I think sometimes people want to get into forensic psychology because they want to go talk to serial killers. I mean, it's possible. There's been some research that's been done, but it's probably easier in some respects to get in as a journalist or as a producer of Dateline or, you know, 48 hours than it is, you know, as a, as a, um, as a forensic psychologist. And then there's all kinds of ethical issues about talking about what you've talked about in that situation. So it, it is not the typical, you know, the typical, oh, I got into, you know, to forensic psychology to be a profiler or to work for the, you know, the FBI, which, you know, there are some people who do, but a very, very, very small percentage of people who do that. Um, we're more likely to be doing <clears throat> some of the things I was telling you about working in the, you know, again, in the criminal justice system in some way um, and evaluating people who were up for parole or, um, and like you said, talking to, you know, talking to victims and becoming victim advocates and, and wearing a lot of different hats, but typically profiling serial killers is not one of them. That's so interesting. And so that has to be a question that comes up, maybe not a lot, but often enough and that you, you talked about your book and the questions that typically forensic psychologists are asked. I'm so curious what those are, because I know I have so many questions, <laughs> but what are some that you just find, you know, a handful that you always get asked as a forensic psychologist? I think probably <clears throat> one of the most common ones is, of course, is, you know, why do people become serial killers? And, you know, and that's something that we're, we're still trying to figure out. I mean, I think we have a pretty good sense of 
the roadmap that a lot of serial killers travel down. But before I even talk about that roadmap, we have to talk about, well, what do we mean by serial killer? I mean, you know, we know that that definition has changed over time. It used to be three or more victims. Now, as of 2005, it's two or more victims in two separate incidences. Well, that really is a pretty broad category when you think about it. And whenever we think about serial killers, we do think about sexually motivated serial killers. That's who we think about. We think about Ted Bundy. We think about John Wayne Gacy. We think about, you know, Samuel Little. We think about, the, you know, the um, Golden State Killer. We th- that, that, because that's who we hear about. And yet, there, you know, it's much more diverse than that. I mean, there are certainly female serial killers. There are serial killers who, who you know, kill for money. Um, so so when we, it's kind of impossible to say, you know, what creates a serial killer because there's such a diversity among serial killers. But we do know, for example, that obviously this is going to be a surprise to absolutely nobody, that there is an overrepresentation, obviously, of childhood trauma in the backgrounds of serial killers. It doesn't mean that all serial killers have been abused or neglected in some way. And of course, even more importantly, the vast majority of people who've been abused have ne- would never go on to do, to hurt anybody. As a matter of fact, we all know people, I'm sh- I know you do, I know several people who have had the most horrendous childhoods. And not only do they kind of tr- transform themselves in spite of that it's almost like because of those experiences they have more empathy and they use those those experiences to help other people so again that's what makes it so difficult it's like okay yeah we know that there's an overrepresentation of childhood trauma and there are some you know serial killers who have horrendous you know um backgrounds or childhoods once they grow up there seems to be some genetic um predisposition and you know a significant number what does that mean? It probably means a temperament, maybe a, a less empathy or a tendency to have empathy um, in some serial killers. So there's this kind of genetic vulnerability or predisposition. Then you have plus kind of this childhood trauma. And then you have environmental factors. You know, a lot of times you have these lack of attachments to what we call normal social institutions, a lack of attachment to church, lack of attachment to school, um, you know, a, a deviant peer group, for example. So you have all these things kind of going on. A lot of times, maybe you might have some head trauma. We know there's an overrepresentation of head trauma among serial killers. So it's almost like this recipe that you have to have. And then at some point, when you're talking about a sexually motivated serial killer, these kind of deviant sexual fantasies begin, oftentimes around puberty. Maybe the person um, discovered violent pornography, or more likely they were having these fantasies and then veered off into violent pornography, kind of self-selected into those kinds of things. They begin fantasizing. Um, a lot of times, you know, again, they'll, you'll, they'll start doing things like peeping into people's houses or going in and stealing this fetish burglaries, going in and stealing underwear and those kinds of things. And it then progresses. And then you have some kind of life event that is the trigger. So it's not the cause, right? Because you have all this soup, all these rest, all these ingredients that are going in. But at some point, something happens and that person crosses over from fantasy into action. So fascinating. And I was going to ask you about the head trauma because I feel like um, the neurological trauma, I wouldn't, I mean, you would know better than me. It's not new, but I would say I feel like I've heard that in more recent years that people are digging in and doing more research specifically on just that. Is there, I mean, is, am I right in that? Or has it actually been something that's been known for much longer than that? No, I think you're absolutely right, Nicole. I think there's been um, a lot of not only research, but I think the technology, you know, has has really helped. We can do these fMRIs now. We can actually see people's brains as they're thinking, as they're making decisions, and those kinds of things. That's relatively new. There's there have been some attempts to introduce this into the courtroom as part of a defense strategy, and we're not quite sure where that's going to wind up. I think eventually there'll be some, um, you know, some admissions or into evidence. And and there may actually be a couple of cases already, but that'll be battled out, of course, between judges and attorneys um, in terms of whether that meets the standard or the scientific standard for admissions. But we do know that there's some brain differences um, that tend to show up among certain violent offenders. Um, And again, this can be due to head trauma. This could be due to some in utero thing. We don't really know a lot of times, was this person just born differently? Was their brain just kind of structured differently. The the hard part of it is, 
are the challenges that we can see these group differences. So you can take maybe, I'm just going to make this up for a minute, 100 violent offenders, for example, and 100 you know, people off the street who've never had any kind of history whatsoever. And you might see these differences. You might say, okay, we have 20% over here. We have 1% over here that have these different, different brains. The challenge, though, is applying that to one individual, number one, and connecting that particular brain difference that you can see, perhaps, to behavior. And that is the hard part, and that makes it problematic a lot of times for you know for defense attorneys because it's it's one thing to talk about group differences, which we are beginning to see. It's another to say if a person's fMRI looks different in this situation, therefore they are going to do A, B, and C. We don't tend to work that way as people. It's more much more complicated than that. So people can have all kinds of brain differences um, and exhibit the same behavior, and that's the challenge. So challenging, so complicated. I can't, I cannot even imagine. And like you said, also maybe slowly starting to introduce this into the court system and how that's going to go and how we've seen um, the response in the court system to, um, you know, lie detector tests and DNA evidence has definitely significantly changed over the years and evolved. So that that'll be fascinating to see how how judges respond to neurological trauma tests and things like that. Um, so as a whole, when we talk about how complicated this all is, I mean, it goes without saying, but it's so incredibly important. Um, and you've touched on why it's important, but just if you could tell us why this is something you're so passionate about, what makes forensic psychology as a field so important, do you think? I think... Forensic psychology is so important because it really does look at, you know, in a a simple kind of way, you know, number one, why do people do bad things? You know, why do people hurt other people? And that is such a fundamental question that we have. And number two, how can we prevent people from hurting other people? You know, um, and how do people recover from being hurt? So in some respects, you know, we all deal with trauma in some respects. We all get hurt by other people. We all So it's a, a continuum to some extent, you know, when you look at the, at the criminal justice question. I think some of those questions that we're trying to answer, particularly in the criminal arena, are really fundamental questions that kind of overlap with so many different things, with, with morality, with spirituality, with development. Um, and and, and they are so complicated. I mean, we, you know, we know, for example, you were talking about some of the changes we've seen in how lie detectors are viewed. Well, we certainly have seen a huge difference in how juveniles are seen. I mean, there was a period in time, and in some countries, um, I can't, you know, there's one country, and I can't think of the name of it right now, but, you know, the, the criminal responsibility starts at age 10. And, you know, we know that a 10-year-old certainly can be aware that, no, I shouldn't pick up a truck and bop somebody over the head with it. But to think that a 10-year-old has the same capacity to delay gratification, to have impulses, to make those kind of long-term decisions, we just know that's not true. And so we've seen, and this is another, uh, I think, area when we're talking about why is forensic psychology so important, is because if we're looking to rehabilitate people who have kind of gone down the wrong path, then we need to look for what are some things that make this person rehabilitatable. And we know that brains mature, just naturally mature, um, you know, up to the mid-20s. Now, it doesn't mean people can't be responsible and shouldn't be responsible, but we're looking at potential for rehabilitation. Um, Somebody who does something at 15, um, arguably, um, is more likely to you know, not recidivate or be more amenable to intervention than somebody who does it at 30. And he's done it, you know, so there's just so many, I think, important questions that don't even seem, you know, we think about forensic psychology. Oh, that's a law. That's for people who do bad things. But really, it relates to all of us. Those are all questions that we have. It's absolutely, uh, I, I cannot imagine, like you said, the questions and how important overall this field is. And specifically, when we were talking about cases that you've researched, which, you know, you've researched a number of cases. Um more recently, you had done research on the case of Susie Zhao. And to make sure for listeners who aren't as familiar with her case, this past November, 
a convicted sex offender was sentenced to life in prison for brutally raping and killing Susie, nicknamed Susie Q. Zhao, she was a professional poker player and then was burnt alive. So um, Jeffrey Morris, he was 62 years old, I guess was handed down a mandatory life term without the possibility of parole. Um, again, this just this past November. So before we unpack the case, though, can you give me a little background on Susie uh, just as a person? So Susie Zhao was really an interesting and delightful person from everybody who knew her. She is somebody who was born in China, in Beijing. She moved to the States with her mom when she was about eight years old, and they settled in Michigan. And she was raised from the, from that point on by her mom and her stepfather. She was a very bright, kind of precocious child from her friends who, who knew her. And she had these long-term friends who had known her since elementary school all the way up until, you know, her career as a poker player. Um, she loved games, even as an early, you know, at an early age, any kind of game. And then in middle school, she apparently discovered poker. And it wasn't long before she was literally winning the lunch money of her classmates. Um, so she was kind of a whiz at it, but she was very, very bright. She ended up going to college. She got a bachelor's degree in psychology from Northwestern um, University. She ended up, um, though, in 2009, after she graduated, she really wanted to pursue a professional poker player. You know, it was kind of something, her dream of hers. And so she moved to Los Angeles and she was relatively successful at it. You know, I've read, you know, that she's, she earned anywhere from almost 200000 to over $300,000 during her career. Um, she spent from 2009, probably the next 10 years, she kind of bounced back and forth on the poker circuit between um, LA and Las Vegas. Um, and, and she was, again, very, very popular. She was kind of known for her poker face. That was something that she was apparently really good at. Um, but I think one of the challenges that came up later is that she really was somebody who, you know, kept her emotions in and that she almost had a poker face with her friends. So her friends always saw her as being happy, not really having any problems. She was somebody who was there for other people, but had a really difficult time asking for help for herself. Um, but again, delightful, delightful person. She was 33 years old um, at the time that she died. She had, <clears throat> excuse me, she had moved back um, to Michigan and was living with her mother and stepfather at the time that she died. And there's a little bit of um, uncertainty about why. So I think some of her friends thought it was because of COVID, which, you know, People aren't play, weren't playing poker and doing those kinds of things at the time. Everything was kind of shut down. Um, but but it has come to light um, during her trial that she also had, had some mental health challenges for several years. And so there was some um, testimony that she had moved back home to kind of deal with some of the mental health challenges that she was having. And so that's where she was at the time that this horrific event happened. And it is, I mean, so horrific. I, when I, I'll be honest, when you had pointed me in the direction of this case, I, I had not heard about Susie Zhao. And we've touched on this earlier, but you think about seeing someone in a case, a victim who you relate to. I'm 32. She was 33 when this happened to her. Um, very bright. Everything ahead of her, really, if you think about maybe moved home to deal with um, COVID and mental health struggles like we all were in 2020. Um, so in, in that same vein, too, when if she was back home in Michigan living with her family, she had pursued this professional poker career successfully, um, which I just think is amazing because from the little that I know of professional poker, it's a pretty male dominated field. So um, when was she last seen alive by loved ones? So she was last seen alive on July 12th of 2020, around 5.30 p.m. by her mom. Um, it's kind of relevant to talk a little bit about the few days before all this happened, um, because she had contacted a friend of hers named Michelle um, that she had known for about 18 years, but they had lost contact for several years. And so it was really a surprise. This was Michelle's testimony. It was really a surprise. She kind of called her out of the blue a few days before um, Susie was murdered, had called her kind of out of the blue. And Michelle said that she was very surprised to hear from Susie, but she was happy to hear from her because they had been friends. And, um, and so 
Susie wanted to get together with her. And so they made arrangements for Michelle to come pick up Susie. And I think um, Michelle already had plans to go visit a friend with, and she was going to take her three-year-old daughter with her. She invited Susie to go with her. And so Susie initially asked her to pick her up at her mom's house. And then right before Michelle was going to come, apparently Susie called her and said, no, pick me up at this hotel. And then ended up telling her to pick her up across the street to the McDonald's. And so Michelle thought that was kind of odd. Um, she hadn't seen Susie in a pretty long, long time. So she was kind of like, I don't really understand this, but she went and picked her up and she described that um, this was on a Friday, it probably would have been July the 11th. So she picked her up. They spent the night at her friend's house and she just says that Susie just was acting very, very oddly. She um, at one point took her car for several hours without telling her where she was going. She came back. Um, there was some medication missing, ADHD medication. I don't know who it was for. It wasn't for Susie. And Michelle had no idea what happened to it. She assumed, which we still don't know, that that maybe Susie had taken it. Susie didn't have any drug history or anything like that. But the next day um, in the car, apparently uh, Susie was acting very oddly. She was rolling the window up, rolling it down, you know, just do it acting erratically. And at one point, I guess, acted like she was choking or somebody was choking her. And you can imagine with your three-year-old daughter in the car, um, she was very concerned by this. She, she's just completely freaked out by what Susie's doing. And she has no idea. Well, and unfortunately, she assumed that Susie was using drugs, um, not because of any history of Susie's, but because she has no idea what's going on and she doesn't know what to do. So she ends up asking Susie to, to leave, basically. Says, I'm not comfortable. This is just odd. And she ends up dropping Susie off at a gas station. And so Susie called her mom. Her mom came and picked her up and brought her back to the house. Um, Susie's mom and stepfather then go out to dinner. Um, Susie's at home. They're home. And when they come back, Susie's no longer there. So strange. So the erratic behavior, calling an old friend out of the blue, may may or may not have taken her medication for her ADHD medication. Um, so, so what too? It's so. Uh, what happened? Knowing how horrific it was, was it a chance meeting that she met uh, Jeffrey Morris, um, or did she know him somehow ahead of time? My understanding, and again, this is another one of these kind of question marks that I'm not sure it ever got answered, is that they had stayed not together um, at the same hotel at different points in time. So it is possible that the two of them had met at some point at this hotel, but nobody could really confirm that. What we do know is that on July the 12th, they had exchanged several text messages or several messages on the phone with each other that he came and picked her up um, outside of her mom's house. We have no idea what they're, that we have no, there was no indication they had any relationship before that. Um, and, you know, his story to this day is that, you know, they were together, they went and got alcohol, they partied, they had sex and he fell asleep and he woke up and Susie was gone. Now, there is, of course, overwhelming evidence. I mean, overwhelming evidence. I mean, I think it took the jury like an hour or less than an hour to come back with a verdict um, and just incredible incriminating evidence that he is the perpetrator in this situation. And, you know, one of the reasons that I got so invested, I was going to say interested, but it was it went beyond that. It really became invested is because, you know, whenever there's a murder or there's a mass shooting or there's something horrible that happens, immediately we see mental illness immediately touted as the cause. This person must be mentally ill. They must be, quote, crazy because look what they did. And the reality is, and I know you already know this, I'm sure you do, is that individuals with, with particularly with severe mental health disorders are much more likely to be victims of crime than perpetrators. Only about 4% of crime can be traced to a severe mental illness or symptoms related to that. And yet that is absolutely not the common knowledge. And we know now, um, even her friends, Michelle, which is so heartbreaking to me, um, Michelle had no idea, nor did any of her friends, that she had been diagnosed with schizophrenia um, as an adult and that it certainly appears as if what she was experiencing when she was doing all these things that didn't make any sense to people who knew her, was she was experiencing some active signs of psychosis. 
And I think that that Jeffrey Morris took advantage of that. You know, he found, found somebody who was vulnerable um, and he and fragile and he convinced her to meet him. And then, as you pointed out, he proceeded to rape, torture and murder her. And so I got so invested in this case because of that, because just it really does illustrate, you know, how vulnerable, you know, people can be in a situation and, and that when we talk about mental illness, we need to talk about, you know, kind of the reality. I'm not there. There certainly are situations where somebody experiences certain symptoms that make them more likely to be aggressive, but they're not. It, it doesn't depend on your diagnosis. It depends on the very specific symptoms. So, for example, if somebody is hearing voices that are commanding them to do something, then that's something that, you know, there is an association with violent behavior. Or if somebody's having persecutory or paranoid delusions, then we know that there is an elevated risk of that person being violent, which makes total sense. Because if I'm thinking somebody's out to get me, then I probably am going to act or I'm more likely to act in what what, what seems to me like self-defense even though it may make no, you know, no sense to anybody else. So again, I got interested in this case because, you know, Susie Zhao was somebody, I can't imagine her ever meeting Jeffrey Morris um, or agreeing to meet him really under any other circumstance. It just doesn't make any sense to me. Right. That's in, that's why I asked because it just seemed, so she's, you know, living at home with her parents, um, dealing with a, pretty, you know, significant mental health, possibly, like you said, psychotic break, maybe something was definitely um, causing her to act erratically. And then just to uh, just out of curiosity, so she had from time to time stayed at a hotel, she would stay at a hotel from time to time while she was living with okay, while she was living with her parents. Um, Maybe that's where she had run into Jeffrey Morris before. And because like you've so um, pointed out before so poignantly, it's important to think, you know, or to to look into the background, first of the victim, but also to know a little about the offender. And so what is Jeffrey Morris's background? Jeffrey Morris's background is pretty concerning. It's more than pretty concerning. So he was a convicted sex offender. He had his first sex offense conviction in 1989. He had multiple uh, arrests for domestic violence. He had been arrested for failing to register as a sex offender or failing to you know, comply with the requirements that he had. At the time that he was arrested for murder, he was on probation for theft So he had a pretty diverse and extensive criminal history. He was also transient at the time, um, which I'm not completely clear about the circumstances surrounding that. And I think that's the reason why sometimes he would stay in this hotel. Whenever he had money, he would would then do that. And that's, again, that's how we think, I think that the two of them met. It's unclear, at least to me, I'm sure, you know, her parents know, it's unclear to me why um, Susie would stay at this hotel sometimes or kind of what was going on. You know, one of the, of the challenges um, as a family member of somebody who is experiencing active symptoms is if that person is an adult, it there's limited options, you know, for what you can do for that person. Unless that person is actively suicidal, they're actively homicidal. You know, you have clear evidence they're not taking care of themselves. And that I mean clear evidence. They're not eating. They're not bathing. They're not dressing themselves. If they're just experiencing hallucinations or delusions or whatever, and that's it, then you, your options are limited. You, you know, you, you can call the person's treatment team and you should, you can do all those kinds of things. You can support that person. But I know that her, her family had tried at various times to hospitalize her involuntarily on at least one occasion. Um, at one point they had tried to become her guardian in terms of her decision, you know, helping her with some of the decisions she was making. Both of those were unsuccessful um, because again, and there are these competing interests. I mean, it is important that people have autonomy and be able to make their own decisions. Um, there are horror stories we've all read about in the 50s or 30s or 40s when, you know, people would stick people in mental hospitals because they were mad at them or didn't want to, you know, wanted to get rid of them or whatever. So we need those safeguards in place. But sometimes it really does tie the hands of the family members who are just kind of sitting back watching and, and worried about this person. Well, and it sounds, it's so true. I, I hadn't really considered 
her being 33 and it sounds like maybe her moving home was one step in that direction too, that they'd have, she'd have autonomy, but they could still be around her as much as possible. Um, and so knowing his background, like you said, very problematic. Um, what you, you mentioned, the jury took maybe an hour at the end of his trial to deliberate and, and what evidence, what led him to eventually and ultimately get arrested, charged, and sentenced with Susie's murder? I think the initial link was the cell phone data. So when they got Susie's cell phone data, they, they obviously saw the phone number. But even, I think, more incriminating was the fact that they saw kind of parallel places. So they were able to see that his phone and Susie's phone were in the same place. Um, her body was discovered on the next day, on July 13th, uh, by uh, somebody who wasn't involved in the case just happened to be kind of going by there and came upon this horrific scene. Um, they were able to show that Jeffrey Morris's cell phone had been right there where the body was discovered. Um, you know, I mean, so that was kind of the initial thing. And then, of course, it just unraveled from there. Well, he was arrested, I believe, on July 31st. So it took them a couple of weeks to finally arrest him. They found, I think, a bloody baseball bat um, in his car. They were able to, to find out that he had stolen some, you know, lubricating jelly and zip ties the night of the murder um, from, a, local, from a, a store that was close by. Um, a gas station attendant testified that he had sold him a gas can. Um, I mean, you know, his DNA was found during the autopsy. I mean, there really was overwhelming evidence to to indicate that he was the perpetrator. Well, we've we've said over and over horrific. Um, I cannot imagine hearing some of the details, which I'll, I'll go ahead and just read some for listeners. So according to evidence, Susie was brutally raped, causing damage to her genitals. She was restrained with zip ties, doused with gasoline, set on fire while she was still alive. Uh, her body was so badly burned that when it was discovered, as you mentioned the next day, two, the two men who discovered it thought, it was a mannequin. It was some kind of Halloween prank. It, again, I, I, horrendous, so hard to read. I can't imagine seeing some of this evidence presented at trial. Do you know, I mean, how, wh what was the reaction when evidence did come out and the jury's reaction and how did the general public kind of receive all this? Well, I think it was just, the details were so horrible that I think it just, it, you know, it just kind of spread like wildfire, which is so unfortunate because obviously her family does not want Susie to be remembered for the horrific way that she died. But the details were so terrible that it really did get a tremendous amount of media attention. Um, obviously, her fellow, um, you know, poker players were just horrified. Her friends were horrified. Her mom, I know, was had to go back to China and take care, I think, of her mom. So I think in some ways, fortunately, she did not attend the trial and have to hear all this. Um, I didn't hear any interviews with the jury in terms of how they responded to that. But I do know, which is interesting, that the judge made a statement um, at the sentencing, basically saying it was horrifying having to sit in here and listen to the details of what you did. And I mean, we all know that judges have heard it just about everything. But she made a point of just saying that this was just one of the most horrible, you know, upsetting cases. It was so unnecessary. It was so brutal. It was sadistic. It was extremely sadistic. And, you know, and obviously, like you said, here are, you know, everyday people sitting in here listening to these details, listening to this testimony, seeing pictures of her body after it being discovered, hearing, you know, the medical examiner talk about the trauma to her body and those kinds of things. So, I do wonder, I mean, there have been situations where jurors have had to seek psychological counseling after a trial. And I would not be surprised to hear that this was one of those cases that just was so hard to let go of because those pictures, I don't know how you get those out of your head. I don't, I don't know either. I mean, I, I, yeah, I don't know. I mean, even just as a journalist reading an article about Susie's case and your research, it was difficult to actually be faced with it and also faced with the decision of what to do to the offender. I just cannot imagine. So um, what would you say throughout the trial? We've talked about tons of incriminating evidence that they found, um, thankfully, were able to find 
uh, testimony from friends and and family who probably discussed some of her mental health struggles. What do you think, uh, as far as testimony goes, what testimony had the most impact on the final verdict, do you think? You know, it's interesting. I would imagine that the testimony about the injuries that she sustained and the detailed testimony of what it would have been like for her to go through that. It's hard for me to imagine there being anything that carried more emotional weight than that. I mean, I'm sure that, you know, the jurors got their instructions and they went through all the evidence and and all that. But, you know, we're human beings and, you know, we all have emotions. And I can only imagine that those that kind of testimony, particularly by, you know, a medical examiner, who is saying these things probably in the most, you know, neutral tone or just professional tone and having to see that and in, in the pictures, um, you know, it's, I, I, it's hard not to imagine that the defense tried to get those pictures, you know, not shown because those are the kinds of things that are just impossible to forget, you know, and now you're going in there and you're trying to decide this person's fate. And it's hard to imagine that the jury isn't thinking, you know, is there any way in the world we could even stomach the thought of this man ever getting out of prison? Um, no, there's not. And of course, in this situation, the evidence was overwhelming. But I do think the testimony about her injuries and what happened to her and, and the vulnerability, I think, too, would, would, would just make it doubly hard and upsetting. Absolutely. And and I was going to ask you, too, I, I would assume not because you've already sort of touched on it, uh, that Morris has said he fell asleep. They, they had sex, he fell asleep, he woke up and she was gone. So did he, I would assume, did he show any remorse during the trial? Did he seem to own or take responsibility for anything that happened? No, he didn't show any remorse at all during the, as as a matter of fact, he's still protesting his innocence and is basically saying when he was asked if he had anything to say at sentencing, he said, no, I'll just keep it to myself. I'll wait for my appeal. So he is continuing to say that it wasn't him, that yes, they, you know, they quote hooked up and had sex, it was consensual, and then she somehow disappeared. Um, It's hard for me to imagine, just based on his history, um, and one thing I didn't mention, which I think is relevant um, in terms of of maybe the psychology um, of Mr. Morris, is um, they also found over 2,000 images on his computer of basically kind of rape, torture, bondage, um, pornography, and a lot of it involving um, Asian women, um, some of it out, actually occurring out in parks. I mean, just horrific images on his computer. So the prosecutor alleged, and it sounds like they had some pretty good evidence to support the fact that this was really part of the sexual fantasy, that he'd been having these deviant sexual fantasies for a long period of time, and he just picked vulnerable, a vulnerable person to essentially act them out on. Just horrific. So, so no, no remorse. He does, I guess, plan to appeal. Um, but as as it stands now, he's been sentenced to life without the possibility of parole. Um, and that was what I was going to ask you next is as a forensic psychologist, you, you've said what drew you to this case. What were your biggest takeaways? I just, it's so hard to wrap your mind around, why would Jeffrey Morris, why does someone do what he did? Yeah. I mean, it's interesting because I, I always kind of walk this fine line. I've obviously never evaluated Susie Zhao. I've never evaluated Jeffrey Morris. And so whenever I look at, at you know, in, in, in her respect, obviously her mom disclosed that she had been diagnosed with schizophrenia. So it's easy to talk about that because that's kind of out there in the testimony. Her, her mom wrote a letter about that. When you're talking about Jeffrey Morris, you know, we can only look at some of the, like the pornography that he was, was um, interested in and was consuming. We can look at his history of sexual offending. Um, we can look at, you know, kind of his lack of empathy and remorse uh, for the victims, his history of domestic violence. Um, and, you know, one of the things that, and, uh, that seems kind of clear to me, just based on the outside looking in, is that, you know, we, Jeffrey Morris seems to have you know, what we call, you know, sexual sadism, which is getting pleasure, you know, from hurting, from pain, getting sexual pleasure from pain and those kinds of things. And we don't know how to treat that. You know, we don't. Um, 
And so, you know, when you look at a situation like that, you kind of go, is that a mental illness or is that a condition? You know, you know what I mean? I mean, so it, it just, it, it really does raise a lot of questions. Like, it, I don't know what we do in that situation, but what we do do is we recognize that the risk for reoffending in situations like that, it goes way up. You know, you, this is somebody who, you know, I don't know, you know, wh- his history in the past five years, but certainly this is somebody who needs monitoring. Um, and this is somebody, you know, it's hard to kind of go, what is the lesson here? I mean, there's no lesson for Susie. I mean, she was a victim and she was an innocent victim. So there's no lesson for her. There's no lesson for her parents. I think her parents did everything they could possibly do. Um, the lesson for me or the takeaway for me, I think, is is the fact that, again, that we've got to remove the stigma around mental illness and make it safe because, you know, her friends came out and just were so devastated, not only by her murder, but also by the fact that they didn't know what she was going through, that she kept all of this in. And so there was a lot of mis misjudging and misinterpreting and misunderstanding because they had no idea what she was going through. And so she missed out on a support system and they missed out on the opportunity to support their friend. And so I think for me, the big takeaway was, you know, not only, of course, in terms of victim advocacy, but mental health advocacy, you know, and, and kind of reducing the stigma and, 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 and supporting families as well who are struggling. I am a family member. My dad had bipolar disorder. And so I could really relate to this story in terms of what it's like in a different way, in a reverse kind of way to see a parent who has active symptoms and kind of to watch that and what do you do? And so I'm very passionate about getting the word out and helping families who are trying to help a loved one and also understanding that, you know, some people have diabetes, some people have schizophrenia. I mean, there's not a lot of difference. Absolutely. And and in that same vein, so uh, her family, and I always like to end when we discuss a case um, with a note just specifically about the victim and Susie, um, how do they, have they said, want Susie to be remembered? I think like so many families, you know, they want her to be remembered for the remarkable person that she was because she really was. I mean, she was somebody who you know, moved from one country to the next, embraced this kind of unusual profession that, as you mentioned, was kind of a male-dominated profession, moved on her own, not only from one country to the next, but then on her own to another state, kind of made a life for herself. I mean, she had so much courage. Um, Her friends describe her as having so much light, you know, just so much joy. And I think, you know, I don't want, I know her family doesn't want that to be taken away, Obviously, physically, it's been taken away, but her memory, you know, I think should kind of burn bright. And I think the other part of it is I think her family does want, and I know her friends have been very, very outspoken, that they want to use, you know, Susie's story as a platform, as I've already mentioned, to really talk about, again, mental illness and, you know, it, it, it not being anything to be ashamed of. And how do you support your friend or how do you support your family member who's going through that? Absolutely. Well, is there anything uh, you wanted to add about Susie's case? Or I mean, is what's next for you in terms of what what's next for you as a forensic psychologist? <laughs> wow, well, I always have too many projects going on. Um, I'm having, as I mentioned to you, I'm really enjoying the evaluations I'm doing right now. I'm kind of knee deep in those. And I do have a couple of writing projects. I'm doing several interviews that are coming up. One thing I'm hoping that I will do, um, which I don't know why I say that, because I act like I'm talking about somebody else, but it's really me. It's like I, I keep wanting to put more effort into my own podcast and, and YouTube channel, but it it's not happening. So so um, we'll see how that is. But I guess, I, you know, I have a couple of book projects, but they're very in the early stages. So maybe at some other point I can tell you about those when they're a little bit further down the road. Um, but mainly I just feel so incredibly lucky to have the profession that I do. And to be able to, you know, work with the people that I do and talk to the people that I do and try to have an impact um, in terms of helping victims and offenders um, kind of end up in a different place. Such a fascinating field. And you can tell Dr. Johnston is so passionate about what she does day to day, the cases that she researches 
of course, including Susie's case, specifically highlighting the importance of removing stigmas where mental illness are concerned. And like her family and friends said, remembering her for her light and her courage. Thank you so much for listening. Again, my name is Nicole Bennett. This is my true crime podcast, Beyond Criminal Headlines. Every few weeks, you'll be able to find new episodes on any of your favorite podcast providers featuring conversations between myself, esteemed journalists across the industry, and experts in the field of true crime. Now we add forensic psychologists who've covered some of the most notorious crimes in our history. And I say it at the end of every episode, you can follow the podcast on Facebook. It's at Beyond Criminal Headlines. Send me ideas for cases, you guys. We've got obviously limited time before the end of 2022, which I can't believe I'm saying, but Keep your suggestions coming. I've had multiple people contact me in the weeks following our last couple episodes. I've genuinely enjoyed every conversation that I've had on Facebook with listeners. I hope you learned something from this week's episode featuring Dr. Joni Johnston on the field of forensic psychology as a whole and the tragic case of Susie Zhao. Be sure, I know she mentioned some of the books that she's written, one in particular, Serial Killers, 101 Questions True Crime Fans Ask. Be sure to check that out. We'll be back again soon. Until next time, this is your host for Beyond Criminal Headlines, Nicole Bennett, signing off. Pulling up to Mickey D's just for drinks? Oh yeah, that's me. Nothing extra, just perfection and a straw. Coming in hot for the coldest cups on the block. Because there are drinks. Then there are drinks from McDonald's. Mix things up with any size lemonade or sweet tea for $1.49. Perfect with our classic fries. Price and participation may vary. Cannot be combined with any other offer. Ba-da-ba-ba-ba.